This is TREP Wire Week in Review for week ending December 18th. I'm Martha Kocher with TREP, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manus Clancy, Senior Managing Director and Joe McBride, Head of CRE Finance. This week, rollout of the Pfizer vaccine is underway and a second vaccine from Moderna looks to get FDA approval. COVID hospitalizations and deaths are still breaking records prompting states to impose more restrictions. And the effects are showing in disappointing economic news. Retail sales were down last month. Initial jobless claims surged to a three-month high. Mid-Atlantic and New York manufacturing activities showed signs of weakening consumer demand. And home builder confidence is down despite the surge in housing starts. Meanwhile, Congress scrambles to push through a $900 billion relief bill Man, it's like the boy who cried wolf. We've heard this relief story before, but before we get into that, I do want to give a congratulations and a welcome back to Joe, who's added to his brood. Well, thank you, Martha. I'm reporting live from Greenwich Hospital here, um, (laughs) where we've just welcomed the second child into our mix. Um, I, I have to say that the no visitors after you have a kid is actually an amazing amenity. Um, as much as I love my family, there is something about having 45 people in a very small room around your newborn, especially your first, who you're viciously scared that someone's gonna drop him on his head. Um, the nice thing is on the second one, you're like, ah, every, everyone, everything's fine. That's true. But I will say the new rules of uh, COVID times are you cannot leave the room. You can't even walk around the hallways. You can't go get a sip of water or anything. So it was the most luxurious and family-oriented solitary confinement over three days uh, that I've ever been a part of. But thank you. This is a paternity leave podcast special. We record the podcast every Thursday, rain or shine. Or baby. Or baby. So in retail, we mentioned at the top of the podcast that sales were down and that sector continues to deal with challenges, Manus. Well, the whole thing about your open, you talked about everything um, that was somewhat negative this week, jobless claims, builder confidence, retail sales, empire state manufacturing. The interesting thing to me was, you know, all of those things missed, right? The jobless claims number was higher than expected, builder confidence retreated from its all-time high last month. Retail sales were disappointing. Who's making these estimates is my question, right? We're seeing a whole new wave of closures across the country, um, shutdowns that seem in some ways worse than they were in May and June. Who's expecting good numbers right now? That's what I want to know, that who was thinking that retail sales were going to come in um, at a level that was going to be even modestly acceptable. I, I don't really get that part of it, right? This is a, a really dark time in terms of travel, restaurant attendance, um, shopping mall visits, store openings. Um, you know, it, I was kind of blown away that the estimates were as high as they were. Yeah, well, I have a good friend who works or worked at a PR firm that specialized in restaurants, so, you know, supporting the openings of new restaurants. And uh, he was talking about how it's just, you know, it's the end times, and especially in Manhattan. And uh, now with Cuomo closing indoor dining again, I think that 
I don't know if it's going to be, uh, we mentioned this months and months ago, but it's very, very sad that there's going to be thousands of businesses that die because of this. And um, on the other side, it might be like a Forrest Gump uh, shrimp boat situation where the 15 or 20 or 25% of restaurants that are able to make it through are going to be gangbusters when things actually reopen again. I had to see it firsthand this week, um, the New York thing, that I hadn't been to Manhattan since uh, early March. And the other night I, I put my 19 year old in the car, we decided to go down and get John's Pizza on Bleecker Street, um, partly to kill time. There were no games on that night and, and we were getting some cabin fever and, and partly to do my own primary research. So we drove down over the uh, Henry Hudson down the West Side Highway, um, and just some oddball observations that uh, I made along the way. The traffic going northbound on the West Side Highway, leaving Manhattan, was like there was no recession or COVID close at all. And it was really bumper to bumper on the on the way up north. And, and a fireman buddy of mine told me that the reason for that is that nobody comes in via mass transit anymore. For anybody that has to be in the city, they're all driving in. So the amount of car traffic that you see in the city is, is enormous, which I kind of witnessed firsthand. But I got off at Bleecker Street and kind of drove from, from west side to east side. And it is a very dark place right now. Um, they have uh, a lot of outdoor setups, but nobody's in them. They're really, really empty because it's so cold right now. Um, I don't really understand how that's any less risky than indoor dining when you consider that they're enclosed. So if people could sit outside in a kind of a circus tent atmosphere, I don't know why they have to be uh, separated from eating from inside. I don't, I don't really get it. It seems as, as enclosed outside as inside. Um, very few people on the street, um, very few people um, walking around, going to food. Um, in some ways it looked like a third world country, millions of guys on bikes delivering food and unfortunately, a lot of these constructed outdoor dining places look like shanty towns. It's, it's kind of a, a very sad state of affairs. That's why that DoorDash IPO went so well the other day. Well, the, I the, wonder... the most interesting device I saw, if you've ever seen those, those images of people living on the North Pole and they live in those kind of you know igloo-like things that are kind of tense, there were some oh, indoor yeah. dining facilities that were like that, right? They were like these little biospheres that people were eating in, which seemed more <laughs> enclosed than anything possible. Like, how could that be safe? I've seen the, I, I've been in the city a bunch of times over the last, this whole time. And I, I see the same thing. It's literally, you know, nobody's, very few people are on the subway or the train, but everyone's on the West side highway going North or the FDR drive going North at four or five o'clock. Right. So Again, the, the we, we have to come up with some whole new index. It's no longer the five o'clock guy had nothing to do in the office, so he got on the train at Grand Central Index. Yeah, right? it now was it's the West Side Highway Index. I was really aching for these restaurant owners. You know, it was just they put a lot of money into these places outside. Um, I knew that they were going to have to come down because they couldn't support 16 inches of snow, which was what we were expecting this week. And you know, one or two people in them or none. Uh, really, really hard to 
you know, hard to see and not get sad. That being said, I will give a great shout out to John's Pizza, which has terrific uh, Bleecker Street pizza. And if you're in that area looking for something to spend your money on, as good as ever. John's of Bleecker does not need pub from us. I'll tell you that much. I think it's the highest rated uh, pizza out there based on some very um, professional pizza reviewers. So we had a trading alert this week, Manis, on a retail loan modification. Yeah, this was um, very interesting. We put it out, I think it was Monday afternoon. Um, the organization or, or the, uh, the operator that broke this was the Commercial Observer, Kathy Cunningham there. She reported that uh, the owners of the Las Catalinas Mall had gotten a big uh, modification. They are owned by Urban Edge REIT, and the modification was uh, arranged by Ironhound and uh, Kevin Thompson of that organization. He negotiated the deal. Um, two, th two pieces of information for here. One is what were the details of the modification. The first is that the borrower was granted enormous amounts of uh, relief, meaning the principal on the loan was erased. It was a $130 million loan for which uh, $56 million of um, relief was granted. You know, the balance of the loan was partially erased down to about 72 million, 75 million, something like that. Um, we did see some of this take place after the great financial crisis that special services would grant this relief because they felt like the borrower was the best entity to keep in the game to operate the property. Um, but in order to operate it, they needed a lower basis. And that appears to be the case there. Um, I do want to uh, note a, a faux pas in our reporting, which was we didn't give credit to Ironhound at the time for having negotiated this deal. And uh, they've done a few of these deals and they're very good at what they do. Um, the borrower was also granted 18 months of maturity extension, pushing the maturity out from 2024 to 2026. And they were also granted some rate relief. So why do we call this a trading alert when we send it out? The reason we call it a trading alert is because this is the kind of news that could change the value of bonds, either lower pay bonds or uh, first pay bonds that know that they're gonna have lower uh, credit enhancement or interest only bonds. So when these things happen, we try to alert our readers immediately so that if bonds are out for bid that contain this loan and there were two CMBX issues that had um, this particular loan in it that would be sellers or would be buyers of the IO bonds or the uh, bonds down the credit stack might be impacted by this. So we do get um, this type of information into the hands of our readers as fast as possible. So nobody gets quote unquote picked off. Nobody makes a bad trade. Sometimes uh, we will have made the change to our cash flow models to reflect the terms if they've been confirmed by the servicer or special servicer or trustee. And sometimes we will not have made the model um, change yet, but that's important for traders to know so that they know that if they're buying or selling this bond, they have the most up-to-date information they can um, if looking at a bid list with this, uh, these bonds on it. So, man, it's just to be, I'm always the guy that 
puts it simply for the for the newbies um you know you have this this cmbs deal which has a bunch of bonds which are backed by a bunch of loans and if one of those loans uh all of a sudden gets the not even the value the outstanding balance what did you say it was a hundred and something down to 72. it was a 130 million dollar loan that had amortized down to 127 mm -hmm. and 56 million was going to be forgiven so fifth and f that's that's different than uh putting it into a hope note and hoping that it you know gets recovered someday even though no you're probably knowing that it's not this is actually you know if you own the bottom tranche of the deal which is the first loss tranche you're immediately going to take at least that much or you know maybe that much or whatever's left of the bond is you're going to take that as a principal loss immediately and then if you're holding the io and correct me if i'm wrong man as i'm interpreting it if you're holding the io all of a sudden the basis or the outstanding balance of your io bond you know unless you have like an xa or something like that uh it decreases dramatically and therefore your interest payments de decrease dramatically because the basis is much smaller so had you bought this bond the day before this modification news came out right that would that's not a great deal well that's true this one was more complex for a couple of reasons one is that in addition to the write-off which was a hard negative um, for the aisle holder there also was that 18 month extension right which would give them a little bit of upside um so, so maybe the xa guy is happy because he's not exposed to the to the loss on the bottom of the stack yeah so in this particular case there's a jp morgan jpm bb 2014 um, C22 deal, which has a $73 million piece. That's about three quarters, maybe maybe 60% of the entire uh, loan itself. It has a $35 million first loss piece, which is going to be wiped out in full uh, as part of this. Once the that particular deal remits, that deal is slated to remit today, which is Thursday, uh, December 17th. So when that remittance comes out and is posted, you should see a loss of that particular bond in full. Um, going back to the modification for one more uh, moment, normally when stuff is forgiven, what happens is the level to which the loan is, is forgiven to is kind of right where the property is valued at. Like this particular asset was valued at 203 million a couple of years ago. We haven't seen a new valuation come out as part of the remittance data yet. But if I were to guess, the new valuation would be somewhere between 65 and $80 million now, enough so that the borrower has enough incentive in the game to grow the valuation of this property above what it is now. So that's probably what the value is worth. It'll be kind of on par with what the new value of or the new balance of the loan is post-modification. We also did a follow-up on the loan resolved at Burnsville Center in Burnsville, Minnesota. Yeah, this was another interesting piece that you know we've been following for a while. This was a CBL loan. Um, that particular REIT had had liquidity issues um, or at least rumors over the summer uh, around the same time, they were talking about throwing in the towel uh, on their pro on several properties, giving these properties back 
to the owner via deed in lieu. The property backed a $62 million mortgage. The property itself was in Burnsville, Minnesota. Um, the collateral was auctioned off via 10X. The sad results of that 10X auction, not that 10X is sad, it's just that the top bid was, was really underwhelming. It came in under $18 million. This month, the loan was resolved with a $45 million loss, uh, which was not ex unexpected um, given the 10X auction results uh, that we reported a month or two ago. The note represented 28% of a uh, 2010 CMBS deal. The loan had been carrying a $37.5 million um, appraisal reduction. Uh, unfortunately, the loss was bigger than that. The loss came in at 45.1 million, um, you know, which is sizable. When you consider that that's 28% of the collateral backing that particular deal, that's going to wipe out uh, several classes or didn't wipe out several classes of bonds in that 2010 deal. Uh, the F class and the G class from that deal were wiped out entirely along with uh, most of the E class. So Manus, we, we attempted to uh, answer a listener question last week before we got sidetracked and talked about a bunch of other stuff and then ultimately had to cut that out a little behind the scenes here for you guys to hear. So Brian B. Uh, reached out to us uh, maybe two or three weeks ago talking about the Burnsville Center when the story came out about the, uh, the updated uh, sale price out of 10X. Um, and he said, the auction does not include stores such as Macy's and JCPenney, nor the vacant Sears space. Uh, no wonder the bids were so low. So I think this, this gives us a good reason to do a quick educational segment on uh, collateral inline versus anchor versus et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Brian was asking, and it's quite funny because we answered Brian's question in part. We went on a big detour last week. Huge. We finished our podcast, or I did, yes. You know, I like these detours. And about eight o'clock last week, last you know, last Thursday, I had an email Keegan and said, we didn't answer that Brian's question, did we? So we had to go back to the podcast shortly before we released it and cut out the whole segment because we left Brian B. hanging. But mm. his question really was, you know, is this pretty common that most of these mall loans um, have part of the mall uh, service collateral for the loan, but not all of it. And the answer is a resounding yes um, on that question. You know, the mall is made up of really two or three parts. There is the anchor stores, which would be the dealers, JCPenney's, Macy's, Nordstrom's, et cetera. Um, there's the inline segment, which would be everything that connects the malls, which would be your Payless shoes in the old days, a Radio Shack, uh, maybe a restaurant, a small Best Buy. Maybe a Hot Topic. Uh, maybe you know, a... Zara's. Maybe a Abercrombie and Fitch. See? See how this happens? This with is how with happens. cologne, strong cologne wafting out of it, right? Maybe an the, Annie Ann's, a limited two. Justice. <laughs> something like that. The um, Pokemon card store. You know, sometimes the the mall will also include out parcels you know, which would include a bigger Best Buy or back in the day, a Toys R Us or a sports authority, something like that. Normally for, for many 
shopping mall loans. The inline stores for sure are part of the collateral. One or two of the anchor stores may be part of the collateral as well, but very, very frequently the retailers themselves own their own uh, anchor parcels. So you will see in the offering prospectus that um, out of the four anchors, you know, a Macy's, a Dillard's, a JCPenney, and a Nordstrom, um, all may own their own parcels, or maybe three out of the four may own their own parcels, and that doesn't serve as collateral for the loan. Uh, you may ask, uh, what happens when a JCPenney closes in that situation? Well, it is certainly impactful for the loan itself, because even though it doesn't serve as collateral for the loan, if the JCPenney closes at a mall, it does lower the foot traffic for the inline guys that do serve as collateral. So it's a negative event, whether the um, collateral is um, true collateral or non-collateral non, uh, anchor uh, in this case, unless from time to time, you know, it will be a positive when it's a Sears and the Sears is not really generating a lot of square footage or a lot of foot, track, foot traffic for the inline guys and the owner can replace a Sears with, let's say, REI. a Nordstrom or a Saks Fifth Avenue or something like that. That would be kind of a, an upsell, but more often than not, a closure is a negative event. Well, it's like in 2014, was it, when Seritage Property Group came out, right? That was basically Sears. They, they spun off all their properties that they actually owned into a separate entity that was actually a a REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust, and then, then they securitized a bunch of debt on that uh, big package. So um, did you ever read A Modest Proposal by Jonathan Swift? Of course, it's, you know, mandatory, you know, <laughs> uh, junior high school reading. So uh, ask a millennial. Uh, so you guys should go read that. Um, by the way, it's satire, please. All right. So don't, you know, call me and yell at me that it's, you, you know, seriously. That, that you're taking it seriously. It's supposed to be satire. But um, I once wrote my own modest proposal in high school. And I can't really talk about this, the subject matter. But when I handed it in, I told the teacher, I said, this might be the worst thing I've ever written. And then I got a high honors, which is like an, the equivalent of an A plus in my high school for it. And she said, this is the best thing that you've written. I can't believe you said that this was bad. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because all throughout the essay, Jonathan Swift's writes, but I digress. Mm, now, now it comes around. All right. Get we it? are the digressing <laughs> airport. All we, right. Here we, we go. We talked about, uh, you know, here we what? go. Oh, oh Martha's right, bringing us back, back. Back on track. We got a couple more details. But I digress. We got, when we got other <laughs> sectors to talk about. JLL had a report that showed that demand for U.S. commercial leases tied to e-commerce delivery, so think last mile, UPS, FedEx, and such, surged 32% over the past three years, and they think that the demand will be exceeding last year's by 130 million square feet. So all of this online shopping has an effect, and they're trying to get their distribution centers as close to the consumer as possible. Well, uh, we've uh, seen this in the numbers, right? We've seen, and, and you know, not all quote unquote industrial properties in CMBS are distribution centers, but a lot of them are. A lot of them are warehouses. Some of them are last mile distribution. Um, I mean, just think about it. I can pick up my phone 
and you know pull up almost any item that you could ever think of and press a button and it'll be at my house in a day or two i mean that is an unbelievable miracle of modern logistics and ups and the reason that people that they can do this is that they've they've created this amazing network of you know big giant um warehouses you see them all along like i-95 as you're driving from new york to dc they're in new jersey they're you know outside of dc and so on and then these smaller distribution centers they've built a few in the bronx um some in brooklyn and things like that over the last few years and you know the equivalent outlying areas of other large cities over the last several years so you know who wouldn't want to be the owner of those types of properties or properties that can be easily um, turned into something like that. I think there's some issues with locals. So people who live in the area probably don't necessarily love the idea of tractor trailers and then UPS trucks coming in and out of their neighborhood constantly. But at the same time, you know, those places generate a lot of jobs and a lot of economic activity. And, you know, those drivers need some, I mean, eventually after COVID, those drivers need somewhere to go take a break and have a, you know, a slice of pizza or something like that, or, you know, or even play a place to live if they work there uh, full time. So, you know, I would be, uh, I'll be very interested to see how much of this stuff gets put into CMBS in the future, as opposed to on bank and insurance company balance sheets, because those are the types of, let's say, I don't want to say bulletproof, but we think right now that they're bulletproof based on the economy and where it's going. Um, so I hope that CMBS does get a good portion of that uh, put into it. I know back, I don't know if it was three, four, five months ago, there was a deal with an Amazon, a set of Amazon distribution centers that uh, it was a, you know, a sale leaseback type deal that was, uh, they put some debt on it and securitized the leases, essentially. I might be getting the details of this wrong, but um, that's an interesting business to go into because you can get some higher yields uh, from some really high credit tenants like Amazon. So I digress. A bit. Lastly, we have talked about Chuck E. Cheese, and there was a story in the Wall Street Journal that the judge ruled in favor of the landlord as opposed to uh, Chuck E. Cheese. So that was interesting and perhaps disturbing. Did we ever figure out what happened with those uh, those tickets? Remember the tickets that you win at the arcade and then you get to uh, you get to redeem them for like one of those little paddles with the ball and the string that you can hit or like for those that got, haven't like, 10 listened, million, you can get a TV. For, for those that haven't listened to all of our podcasts, there was shame a, on you, first of all. <laughs> there was a we, we had a riff a few months ago where Chuck E. Cheese went back to the bankruptcy judge and asked to be able to spend a million dollars to shred nine million dollars worth of unused Chuck E. Cheese trinket currency and um, because they said even though that trinket currency as a liability to them was only like one and a half million dollars it had a street value if it got into the wrong hands of nine million dollars so that if somebody had shown up at Chuck E. Cheese corporate offices with all of these tickets they could be on the hook for $9 million, a $9 million call, if you will, on, you know, the slap paddle. $9 million worth of those rubbery hands that you, that you whip and they stick 
right? <laughs> yeah, the bloody finger or something, you know, with the, uh, you know, the nail through it or something that you put over your own finger. It's the original. It was the original alternative currency. You know, I believe the rule is, and maybe I didn't read the article. I should have. Shame on me. But normally in bankruptcy, if you're going through bankruptcy, you have to continue making your lease payments until such time as you reject your lease, right? And you come out of bankruptcy. So you see these uh, retailers continue to make their lease payments because that's kind of the rule of the process. Um, but perhaps, you know, Chuck E. Cheese are looking for relief now for properties they're hoping to hold on to in the future. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but, you know, that's been the tried and true way. Continue picking your lease until such time as, um, you know, you reject your leases in, in bankruptcy. What we did see this week uh, along the same lines was now that JCPenney is out of bankruptcy, we did see them announce another half dozen store closures. They tended to be really, really old properties that were not in malls. They were kind of in downtown areas that had been around since the 50s. Why they hadn't been closed prior to this, prior to bankruptcy, is, is unclear. Uh, but we did note that none of them back CMBS loans thus far. It, it wouldn't shock, be shocking to see JCPenney have a, an entirely new wave of store closings post-holiday. They did say that they were seeking to close between 200 and 300 stores uh, out of bankruptcy. And thus far, only about 150 have been named. So um, hopefully it's, it's closer to that 200 number when all is said and done, we'll see. So that would be an interesting experiment, uh, data view, if we haven't done it already, to go find all the JCPenney's that are not in a Simon or Brookfield mall and point to those and say, those are the high likelihood closures, right? Or the higher likelihood closures than, than the others. Turning to office, we had a follow-up on a office portfolio that was paid off. This is, this is one that we were watching for a while and we had written about it a few times in um, Trump Wire. The collateral um, was some GSA leased offices across the US. It backed a $109 million CMBS loan. A few weeks ago, we pointed out to our readers that special service or comments included a line that said, quote unquote, negotiations for a modification or payoff with waivers were in process, unquote. So it was the payoff with waivers that concerned us. Whenever we see that, our fear is that the loan is going to be paid off without consideration of the prepayment lockout restriction, which is kind of the sum of all fears for the IO holder and for anybody who's owning the first pay bond and that bond is being marked at a premium. Uh, we pointed out that this particular deal represented a big portion of the collateral between behind COM 2015 PC1. It represented 8.2% uh, of the collateral in that deal. Uh, the collateral was offices in Sacramento, California, San Diego, and Houston totaling uh, almost 650,000 square feet. This month, the loan was resolved, paid off, if you will, with a really tiny loss, uh, less than 1.5% of the collateral, which looked like a special servicing fee. So now this loan now is gone, which is great news 
for the first loss, second loss, third loss owner of that particular deal uh, resolve with you know a minuscule loss, but is very painful for the early pay bondholders and the IO pay IO bondholders, which now lost um, future revenue uh, on this. Um, it did lead us to look for other loans of this type. And there, there were a couple of other hotel loans that were permitted to prepay this month without penalty. These were loans that were locked out through uh, 2024 in one case and 2023 in another case. Um, so we're looking for more evidence of this and it could be something which we see more of. And in, in our view, it's the kind of thing that should make IO holders perhaps uh, require you know, perhaps more spread, if you will, for bonds that are backed by loans with heavy um, concentration to loans with in the special servicing process or loans backed by hotel collateral, right? We'll see if that ends up taking place if people demand more return for these, uh, but it is a somewhat worrisome trend. So in those scenarios, the special servicers essentially making the call that they are going to they are going to have a better or uh, greater net present value resolution to the entire trust by waiving the prepayment penalties and just getting the money in the door, which, I mean, I guess that makes sense. I guess well, they certainly have that latitude. Right. Their latitude is to apply judgment for what is the <laughs> highest um, benefit for the trust. So they do have the right to do this. It wasn't something utilized extensively right. during the great financial crisis, although you did see it from time to time. It could be something that we see more frequently now. As we've mentioned before in the podcast, prior to the last few years, there was a greater tie between owners of first loss bonds and special servicing rights so that uh, an owner could say, you know what, we don't want this to pay off even though we may see a smaller loss you know, we will see higher special servicing fees, right? And that was kind of this conflict of interest that had everybody concerned. And by no means am I trying to um, stoke any um, concerns about unethical behavior. I mean, that's, some people may make that claim, you know, I, I don't want to feed into that narrative, um, but it did exist among some um, 10 years ago. Now you have more separation between the first, uh, loss owner and who the special servicer is. So there is um, a less a lessening of the perception of conflict of interest, which could mean you see, could see more of this where the special servicer thinks, let's get this out of the way as soon as possible. If they're willing to pay us back at par, take it because that reduces our uh, at-risk portfolio. So it's possible in this crisis, we see more of this than in the past. And last week, those of you who listened heard us talking about some big Charlotte moves in the office space, and we saw some similar activity in Chicago. Yeah, we what we do, and we did mention this last time, is that we look for uh, big leases that are expiring um, in the near term that may weigh on the office market. Uh, last week, we talked about a big Wells lease that was coming um, up. Wells had already announced that they were moving to a new location in Charlotte, and that was going to make a big 
swath of space in that city uh, available at possibly the worst possible time, um, you know, with uh, office tenants not knowing how much space they need and with um, really distressed levels of asking rents compared to where we were a year ago. This week, we looked at the Chicago market and the loan that we reminded uh, people of was one that we first wrote about in 2017, 135 South LaSalle. Um, that loan backs a $100 million uh, loan. Uh, B of A occupies 800,000 square feet, which represents 60% of the property's NRA. In 2017, Bank of America announced that they were moving to 110 North Wacker in Chicago, which is a, a new project. And the fact that the lease is coming up so soon reminded us to remind our own clients that this is certainly a loan to watch in 2021. 800,000 square feet is nothing to sneeze at, uh, even in Chicago. Um, you know, demand in Chicago uh, probably will be less in 2021, given uh, COVID. We've seen an abundance of space in Chicago uh, come on board. Ch uh, Crane Chicago did a great piece identifying 13 separate Chicago offices that either have been vacated uh, or will be vacated in the near future in that city. And uh, it, it's an area to watch. You know, there's a glut of sublet space right now. There's a glut of space by virtue of people taking on new headquarters and people giving back space. So take a look at that article and um, uh, keep a close eye on 135 South LaSalle. Earlier this month, we published a list of multifamily loans that had seen some big occupancy declines, and we found another one that came close. Yeah, we, we wrote about this week um, to Cooper, which is a um, kind of NYU area property that um, also had seen its uh, occupancy fall considerably since the beginning of the pandemic. Interestingly, I, I talked at the beginning of the podcast about my odyssey earlier this week through Manhattan. My son and I were driving by this building and I had him staring out the window, looking at the building, trying to figure out what percentage of the lights were on uh, <laughs> in the building. And it was just then that we passed that kind of biosphere contraption outside of a restaurant. And he was distracted and said, oh my God, look at that Look at that igloo outside of the Mexican restaurant. Was so that, he stopped uh, counting. How many times during that trip did he go, Dad, leave me alone. I don't want to be <laughs> counting windows. <laughs> I have to say, as we drove down the West Side Highway, we looked over the Hudson River, and it looked like everything was lit up in those buildings that are on the waterfront, you know, which would be, I guess, Jersey City and um, Fort Lee area. It just seemed completely lit up. But as you got into Manhattan, it seemed more like 40 and 30% of the buildings were lit up. But the, the, the loan we were talking about, it's a $65 million loan backed by Two Cooper, which is a 143 unit high rise in Manhattan's East Village. That loan became 30 days delinquent this month. The loan represents a little over 6% of the collateral behind a 2019 deal. So the deal was really um, securitized very recently. Uh, the deal in question is part of uh, CMBX 13. 
So this is of a piece that, you know, we, we talked about 50 different loans that we looked at last month that saw delinquent, uh, saw occupancy drop by more than 15% between 2019 and partial year 2020. This didn't make the cut, but it came close. Um, the loan was underwritten with an occupancy of 96%, but as of Q3 2020, occupancy was down to 82%. So this is something that uh, we're going to be watching carefully. By February, we should start to see occupancy numbers for year-end um, 2020. We expect these numbers to go up in terms of the number of loans that have seen sizable um, degradation in occupancy from 2019 to 2020. And it is an area of concern for us, for sure. And to add insult to injury, at the bottom of that apartment building is a gym. Right, a crunch fitness. Interestingly, this kind of goes back to the absurdity of the whole thing that you can't eat inside, but you can eat outside in an area that is really fully inside. Um, contained, you know, on the street, right? Like somehow that risk is less in an enclosed fixture on the sidewalk than in one that's inside. But even though the crunch fitness appeared to be closed next door or nearby, there was people fencing. So the fencing operator is allowed to, to continue. Maybe you have to fence in a mask, but the gym <laughs> itself was not permitted to um, remain open. So there's a really strong uh, fencing lobby in uh, up in Albany. So that might be part of it. It just does seem to be, you know, no rhyme or reason. So when you hear guys, you know, we saw, it was it Rick Santelli last week on CNBS, CNBC. He went into a rant about, you know, why can the Best Buy or the Costco be open with 500 people in it, you know, but the big restaurant can't stay open across the street with 25% occupancy. You know, it, it does seem incredibly arbitrary. And, and I'm in the arbitrary camp that, you know, guys are sitting in an office in Albany or Sacramento or Austin writing these rules without any real bearing for the reality of the situation. You know, I got to say, I'm, I'm equally okay or not okay in a 25% restaurant as I am in a 25% Walmart, right? Or 25% tent. Well, nice. I didn't like the biosphere. Like that, that looked like. Well, know, then you're bringing in like a rogue cabbie. That's a big risk as well. Right. Well, yeah. uh, who's a the rogue, rogue a rogue Uber driver? All right. right? Well, you guys so are going. Martha rogue. is giving us that look. Yeah, you're getting rogue right now. So, uh, moving on to lodging, uh, according to CDRU's Q3 2020 report, uh, not good news for lodging as we've known. Their revenue per available room fell by 54.4 percent in the third quarter this year versus the same period last year. So couple data points on lodging that confirm what we already know. So, yeah, I think this this RevPAR stuff coming from CBRE is good to see. I mean, it's not good to see, but um, it's interesting updated data. I would be interested, maybe I, I have to look at the, the numbers, but I would want to see what the quarter over quarter changes have been. I would have to think that we had an increase quarter over quarter from Q2 to Q3. Um, but, you know, what's going to be wild are the comps when we're reading these reports a year from now, you know, like they're going to have to rewrite these reports to say year over year COVID or year over year pre-COVID, right? right? So like the base year of the year over year is going to have to stay 2019 
if we want to have any sense of like normalcy in, in some of these data points. So the same thing with, you know, um, earning statements from companies and things like that, you know, we're going to have EPS, uh, year over year changes of, you know, 5 million percent in some of these companies. So, uh, anyway, uh, that's not really about lodging, but it's just about the state of the world and, and tracking data. Well, the one lodging story we're keeping our eye on, uh, the Nashville Business Journal this week had a piece that Ash Ashford Hospitality Trust has put the Renaissance of Nashville on the market. It's one of two um, hotels backing the $240 million Asheville hotel portfolio loan. Uh, the other one is in, the other property is in Princeton. Uh, it's a Westin, but the Nashville uh, property really dominates the collateral. It represents um, 86% of the collateral by allocated loan balance. The interesting thing for me was they're offering it for sale. Hopefully they get close to par for it. Uh, the allocated loan balance is 207 million. Uh, the story notes that the property is valued at 216 million now. But when you read the recent special servicing notes on this thing, the occupancy of this thing in June was 8%. Occupancy as of September, 13%, which I found completely astonishing, honestly, because if you had said that that was the occupancy in New York City, I would have believed it, or other places, Chicago or San Francisco, other places where lockdowns were really quite hard. But it seemed like Tennessee was one of the least lockdown places, and yet here you have this Nashville hotel, which for many states is a drive-to destination at 13% as of September. That was unbelievable for me. Well, you mentioned drive to. I, my first gut reaction was that most of the people who are staying at a hotel like this in Nashville are the ones who are coming there for bachelorette parties and bachelor parties and concerts and all that type of stuff. So the draw to Nashville is no longer, the, I mean, I don't know what their state of lockdown or not lockdown is, but I have to think that there's probably not having big concerts and big events and stuff like that. So it would be different if it was like, you know, a Best Western or, you know, a kind of a, a limited service type hotel where it's more catering to, you know, I don't know, people traveling shorter term uh, or shorter length. So, yeah, anyway, if anyone's a listener from Nashville, shoot us an email at podcast.trep.com to give us a vibe check. This is a another digression. Earlier today, we were working on something that we contribute for. We do a lot of contributing for the Commercial Real Estate Direct year-end magazine, which normally comes out in January. It's, it's normally a, a physical piece of paper that goes out during the um, Crefsi conference. A it's a magazine. Uh, you know, usually have about 40 <laughs> pages of, of material. <laughs> and um, I, I bring it up now for a shameless plug. If you'd like to advertise in that magazine, let us know. Or if you have a tombstone of sorts or a deal you want to highlight, something that you want to bring up that was an exciting event for your firm um, in 2020 that highlights progress that you made, a deal that you got done, something like that, by all means, reach out to us um, and uh, we'll try to squeeze it in under the deadline, which I think is about two weeks away. So that's our shameless plug, which we do from time to time. Are you doing a good, bad, ugly this year? Always. I will do a good, bad, ugly. And uh, I was doing the winners and losers earlier today. 
and I, I don't want to give away what we're writing, but uh, there were some winners out of the out of the year in a year that didn't have many. I was able to find some. So um, I do know that we circulate some of this material through our our, our blogs in late January. So um, even if you don't get the magazine, uh, some of this will filter out to you. And we had several deals of the week. We did have some deals of the week. Did a, did a deal of the week. Thank you. I do try to focus on things that have been hard hit. I have a couple. Um, Bristol Myers Squibb took on 120,000 square feet of space in Princeton, New Jersey. You know, offices haven't been particularly hard hit. The reason this one jumped out at me is New Jersey has lost a lot of the pharmaceutical uh, demand for offices to places like Cambridge, Mass., and um, Marlboro Mass over time. So to see them keep Bristol Myers in the squib, they have actually lost a lot of Bristol Myers squib over the years as, as well. So this lease was nice to see them get. Uh, the owner of the property was Manulife, JLL repped Manulife on the deal. David uh, Stifleman, Jim Schroeder, Jason Benson of JLL uh, repped Manulife. Those were the individuals behind the deal. Robert Morford of Morford and, oh God, Dodd, I think, um, Realty, I can't write, read my own handwriting, repped Bristol Myers. So I like that deal just because, um, you know, it's a, it a market that's struggling pharma in New Jersey. So uh, bully for them, Manulife and JLL in locking that one down. The other one came from Shopping Center Business, which is something I read frequently. It's a, a web operation that gives some great color into the retail market. They reported on the California marketplace uh, that was sold by a Los Angeles uh, owner for $57 million. The property is grocery anchored in the Koreatown neighborhood in Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, we've known that grocery anchored has done well uh, outside of big urban areas. It's good to see that uh, it got a bid here in an urban area as well. We weren't quite sure how, how well uh, grocery stores were doing in urban areas where uh, COVID lockdown was hard. Michael Schustate, uh, Derek Moore, Chris Karras, and Phil Sample of CBRE repped the seller. Uh, apologies in advance if I've either uh, written these names down poorly or have made pronunciation um, disasters out of your names. I apologize for that. But we were happy to see that retail deal get done in Los Angeles. We had a number of shout outs this week. Matt M from New Rochelle, New York. Russell N from Dallas. Jonathan L. Christian New Row represent Matt. Just saying. Chris W in Detroit. Bob C. And Joe was happy that Rachel I in California actually was uh, identifying with Joe as a millennial. His, his first, I think. Hey, you know what? It's Yes, that's true. It's my first piece of fan mail. Everyone loves Manus. They, know, they always forget about little old, little old color commentary Joe, they call me out there. I got um, a couple of others. I got CW. I got I got a CW. Is it the same CW? I don't know. We'll have to check notes. I don't like to give people away in earnest, uh, but CW uh, reached out to me on LinkedIn and and sent some kind words, and uh, that was nice. Now to I hear. feel less special. And uh, RV also uh, pinged me with some uh, insights. So real happy uh, to get these. For those of you that uh, haven't gotten your T-shirts yet but have requested them. 
they are coming. We are processing these as quickly as we can. And, uh, you know, we had hoped to do a Christmas ornament, something that, you know, said uh, the spirituality of the season, like nothing else on your tree, but we didn't get to it this year, maybe next year. <laughs> so yeah, just to just a quick one on on our friend Bob C, who's a regular listener, he likes to send me his thoughts uh, after most after listening to most of the podcast, which I love to hear. He was he put his money where his mouth is, and he uh, put up 150 uh, big ones as a donation to, I think it was to City Harvest or, or some uh, charity like that. And he wants his lunch with Keegan uh, post-pandemic. And he wants it to be at either Uncle Gussie's or Rafiki or some other various sundry food truck in the Midtown area. So thank you, Bob. Um, we'll see if that bid holds up. I think that the auction is going to stay open for another couple weeks. So if anyone else wants to uh, get their lunch with Keegan, uh, they better, you know, put their money where their mouth is. That's a beautiful thing. I got to say, you know, uh, I, I love to hear stories of generosity during the holiday season, especially in 2020. We talked about our Thanksgiving wishes and, uh, you know, great job to Bob C for, for reaching out and helping those in need during this holiday season and anybody else out there doing the same fully for you. Yeah, I'd just like to say thanks to Bob C as well. No, nobody's ever uh, made a bid to have any meal with me. But I also never thought I would miss street meat and Uncle Gussie's and all those Midtown food carts, <laughs> you know, over the last nine, 10 months as much as hot I Hot sauce, have. white sauce, chicken, lamb combo, hot sauce, white That's sauce. True, exactly. You know, you, you saw none of them this week driving through the city. My son said, where's the nuts for nuts guy? And mm. I said, the nuts for oh. nuts guy can't survive. Banks are trying to convince DC policymakers to extend the December 31st deadline for an accounting waiver that has allowed bankers to give struggling borrowers loan accommodations. So Joe was going to walk us through a little bit of troubled debt restructuring. Yeah. So as part of the um, stimulus package passed in 2020 due to COVID, uh, there was a part of that bill that allowed for a change in what is considered a TDR or a troubled debt restructuring. So in banking land, and I don't, you know, I'm not a banker, I'm not an accountant, but I, you know, I know the broad strokes here uh, from talking to a lot of our bank clients uh, and, you know, reading everything out there. So uh, usually when a uh, bank has a loan that they are going to modify due to some sort of distress, there's a bunch of, you know, kind of um, parameters that have to be passed to, to be considered a troubled debt restructuring. But when that happens, that loan gets put into a different category. It's, it's called a TDR bucket. And at that point, there's a bunch of additional work and disclosure that the bank has to go through in order you know, to have that in the TDR bucket. It also, depending on the type of loan and the type of TDR, it um, increases the amount of capital that the bank has to hold against that loan. It also removes that loan from being uh, eligible for posting as collateral uh, in uh, repo type transactions with the Federal Reserve and, and or other banks. Um, so there's a lot of negatives to the bank when they have to do a TDR uh, on the capital side. So. Basically, this part of the uh, stimulus, which I think was actually a very smart thing, uh, was to say, let's just 
not call these TDRs for now uh, until the end of 2020. And that will allow the banks to be a lot more flexible with their lender, with their borrowers, uh, gives them a lot more opportunity to work um, and do kind of, you know, very intensive type extensions and modifications and forbearances and forgivenesses and stuff like that. So anyway, the moral of the story is that that is, uh, that bill is, or that part of the bill is ending uh, at the end of this month. And so far, as far as we can see, there is no extension of this particular nuance in any of the new proposed uh, bills that are being kind of discussed right now. So this could be a real shock to the system if all of a sudden all of these loans that were put into, let's call them non-TDR uh, modifications, if they all of a sudden have to be put into a TDR bucket, like that could be a little bit of a shock to bank earnings, to capital ratios, uh, as well as to how the banks are handling these borrowers. There's a couple of things out there that are loose ends, you know, call them uh, COVID purgatory items right now, you know, that would be one of them. The other one, which I, I don't think I've seen addressed, maybe some of our listeners will prove me wrong on this, but, you know, back in April, the IRS issued a regulation which allowed REMIC rules to be suspended for a while to permit forbearances to be it's very similar accelerated, thing. if yeah. you will, or expedited. I'm not sure what the word, uh, permitted, you know, during this time frame that certain things would be acceptable, which would normally uh, run a special service or a foul of REMIC rules, that expires on 1231. And as far as I know, a new guidance has not been put out there now. And if there isn't one, I don't know what that does to the um, forbearance options that have been utilized over the last nine months by the special servicers to grant relief. So uh, another item to watch uh, as we see the year and uh, come up. For those of you who celebrate Christmas, you've got about a week to finish your shopping or your letters to Santa. What is at the top of your list, dare I ask? Anything on Amazon that doesn't have that little red note at the bottom, which says we'll ship after, we'll arrive after Christmas, <laughs> after which is Christmas. every day is becoming a smaller and smaller pool of things. Yeah. Well, I know my kids never listen. Uh, even though I tell them this is, you know, so much better than any other podcast out there, um, you know, they choose to deprive themselves of, you know, the deep nerdiness of CRE and CMBS. You should put a little Easter egg in here and say, like, if you're listening, text me the word cucumber and you'll get a little extra, you know, something your in your stocking I'm this your year for Christmas. Well, for me, it would be the... Um, the replenish, replenishing of my fledgling vinyl collection. Nice. You know, maybe a um, exile on Main Street uh, <laughs> vinyl to add to my collection of, of four right now, or maybe um, something from the Velvet Underground, you know, something from the uh, Rolling Stone top 500 albums of all time that uh, I could add to my small but growing collection. Something like that under the tree would be really nice. This is the first time I've had, like I very rarely actually want anything. You know, I'm much more, I mean, it sounds silly to say this, but, and 
I'm not trying to sound like this, but I do like buying gifts for my wife and for my kids. That's a lot of fun for me because, you know, my wife really enjoys getting gifts. Um, whereas I like to, whatever, just send me a box of Pro V1s or like, you know, some golden toe socks or whatever. Uh, but this year, I think I want a uh, fire pit. And I've been hearing a lot of good things about the solo stove. Uh, but I think it's pretty expensive. So I'm not sure if Santa uh, mm. has that in the cards this year after Santa bought a house and had a second kid. Mm. So. I'm not sure I would trust you around fire either. Yeah, no, me neither. No, I think uh, mine would be, I think I already got it. The vaccine is here. And I got to say, when I saw the video of the trucks with the vaccine, I got a little teary-eyed. I'm pretty excited about that. I My actually think Chuck E. Cheese is thinking about becoming a vaccination distribution center. So that <laughs> oh might actually God. help them. Well, and my son, not as noble, he wants a PlayStation 5. So he keeps trying. Good luck with that. Yeah. So with that, we'll close. Thanks to our producer, Keegan St. Anjmay. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question, a comment, want a shirt, send us an email at podcast.trep.com. For more info, visit trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right. <laughs>